Podcastle episode 172 for August 30th, 2011. Doors by Rajan Khanna. Rated R. This one contains some pretty explicit language, folks. Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson and I'm going on a much needed family vacation. Be back soon. Bye-bye. And I'm back. Wow, that was fast, huh? Now, for the sake of posterity and just to be clear, that was actually a three-week absence. I drove my family over a large part of the country, from L.A. through Vegas through Arizona and all the way up to the Black Hills of South Dakota. After that, we went to Montana, Idaho, Washington State, then back down the Pacific Coast via San Francisco and danced with the Lost Boys on the Santa Cruz Boardwalk. We camped out, saw family and friends, and all in all, had a really great time. Then I came back for a couple of days, only to go to Arizona for a wedding. It was a great trip, and I mentioned at the beginning of the summer when we ran Gone Daddy Gone how much I love a road trip, how great it is to see parts of the country I've never seen before. South Dakota may be one of the most beautiful states I've ever seen. And I've never seen stars like I did in Bannock, Montana. That said, I was driving a minivan with a six-year-old and a two-year-old in the back seat. And did I mention we camped for a few of those nights with said six-year-old and two-year-old? Now, don't get me wrong, we all had a great time. Mostly. But occasionally, I would not have minded getting from point A to point F without having to go through B, C, D, and E. You know what I mean? What if it really had all just taken only a few seconds? This week, we're closing out the summer with another story about traveling. Podcastle's proud to present Doors by Raj Ankana, originally published in Greatest Uncommon Denominator, or as some of us like to call it, Good. You all know Rajan is one of our favorite readers here. He's the guy who helped make you all cry at work while reading Kinley Used the Paper Menagerie. You might also remember him as the author of Card Sharp. Rajan lives in New York and is a member of the Altered Fluid Writing Group. He has more work coming out soon in Abyss and Apex, as well as in A Study in Lavender, an anthology of queer Sherlock Holmes stories. Elementary, my dear listener. You can visit him online at rajankana.com. David Owinglestad will be your tour guide on this one. He last read for us, Scottianis. He has a new blog where he discusses writing, world building, research on his novel in progress, and everything in between at davidowinglestad.blogspot.com. Hey, uh, before we head out on our trip, you don't mind if I make a pit stop at the local liquor shop, do you? I'd like to buy myself 400 cigarettes. Enjoy the story. Doors by Rajan Khanna. The door in the men's bathroom leads to a secret world. Head past the stink of piss and shit, the smell you may one day come to regard fondly, and straight for the second stall from the right. Ignore the grunts of the man in the stall next to you. The door won't creak when it closes. It will fit smoothly into the frame. The tag is on the wall, a stick figure silhouette framed by a rectangle. It looks like a cross between a primitive cave painting and a European street sign. The stage is set. Your heart is beating like a rabbit on speed. The anticipation crackles. You inhale deeply, activate the tag, then turn and open the door. For a sickeningly sweet instant, you 
are not. Your body tingles and fizzles away. Everything that you are becomes as intangible and tenuous as a cloud of smoke on a windy day. Revel in the moment, the non-being, before the tether snaps and you're vomited back into the universe. I hate that part. I appear in a garden shed, thick with must and the smell of mold. Sunlight filters through a small window in the roof. Scratches mar the wooden wall, lighter wood showing through against the darker grain. For a good time, call is carved into the wall. I pull out my notebook and take down the phone number. The door opens to the brilliant Australian sun. It was night when I crossed over. Text to Brody. Another one, bro. The sun beats down through a battered ozone layer and warms me through my winter sweater. I decide to find some fun before I move on. You will never find this world in a book. It is spelled out on the walls of bathrooms, in janitor's closets, and bomb shelters, in the scrawl on an alley wall. But only if you know where to look. There are maybe a hundred people across the world who do. From the moment you find your first tag, you become a collector. Some people collect figurines or stamps or comic books. You collect locations. You're a gambling addict in a million-dollar game, a pothead with a giant brick of BC's finest, a sexaholic at a gangbang. I used to be into sex, like really kinky shit. You could tie me up and beat me with a riding crop and I'd be as happy as a pig in shit. Because in those moments, when someone was treating me like an object, I could switch off from bills and mortgages and loans and fucking laundry, push it to one side and let the pain wash it away. Fuck S&M, traveling is better. Fuck meditation, traveling is better. God help me, fuck sex. Traveling is better. I never looked back. Not even when I found out it was killing Brody. Not even when I found out it was killing me. The man sitting across the table, with the gold pinky ring and the cream-colored suit, knows all about traveling. He sips something called a flat white. He is tall and black, his head shaved smooth. He cocks his head to one side. New Jersey, I say. United States. Yeah, fucking Jersey, if you'll believe it. I figure it will be an easy score. No one would want to hold on to that. But I need it, and I need it soon. He scrolls through the screen of his smartphone as I tap my fingers against the table, then shakes his head. I don't have what you're looking for, but I can give you a way forward. It's of the coast in a town called Maruchador, he says. It goes... I wave off the comment. He smiles. It's not uncommon in our circles not wanting to know. Part of the thrill is not knowing. Now it's my turn to put up. I flip through the pages of the worn notebook, looking at my collection in all its untidy glory. Ink scrawls fill the lines, blue and black, a few in red. Mr. Flat White does want to know, wants something in Europe. I find one, a door from a dressing room in Los Angeles to a hotel broom closet in Amsterdam. It will do. He records the information carefully in his smartphone. Then he gives me the address in Ruchador. We trust each other. Our circle is so small that you risk being cut off if you cross someone. No one wants that. I decide to spend a few days in Brisbane, then hit the beach before traveling out. It takes a lot out of you. You can't do too many too fast. And who would want to? The anticipation isn't necessary, but it sure does help. The days dissolve into a cycle of sun, waves, and sand. I wash my clothes in the sink at the oceanfront motel and eat fried fish by the bucket load. I text Brody from bed. It's morning in America. I send him a picture of the beach at sunset. He sends me back a picture of him in his hospital bed, propped up on pillows, hooked up to machines. 
giving me a thumbs up. It's rough. Brody's traveling days are through. Stuck in a hospital bed every day, eating hospital food. No more endless breakfasts. Because that's what Brody liked to do, traveling the world in search of good eggs. As he liked to say, it's always breakfast somewhere. There aren't any tags in the hospital, believe me, I checked. Every time you travel, it takes a little more of you away. If a cigarette takes seven minutes off of your life, I figure each trip takes seven months. At least. The doctors call it all kinds of different names. Degenerative neural disease, systemic organ failure, whatever. But we know it's from the traveling. You can spot it on the seasoned travelers, a trembler in their movements, a slight slurring of the speech, pain they massage away in their hands and arms and legs. I once met a guy who shit himself because of it. Luckily, it was in a bathroom. Yet we all keep doing it, and I'd be shocked if I ever met anyone who stopped. Brody was my traveling guru after I quit my job at Evertech. After the cubicle and the corporate job, after the tie collection and the two pairs of shoes, brown and black. When I met Brody, I was working as a hair boiler. Yeah, that's right. I boiled fucking hair for a living. Animal hair. Even with all the time I spend these days in toilets, that will always smell worse. The ghost of that stink haunts me. Rotten eggs mixed with curry farts. Take that and multiply by ten. You might get close. Brody was a hair-boiling veteran, and after he showed me the ropes and we hit it off, I asked him how the hell he'd ended up there at the ass end of gainful employment. He was 15 or 20 years older than me, graying hair, a beard like a biker. He'd been a guitar player in a band for a long time. Thought they'd had a shot, a real shot, mind you, not like your average garage band. Then fate pissed on his future. Brody found out he had this condition, something to do with his joints or his nerves or something. But his hands were shot, and he couldn't play guitar anymore. He was suicidal. But he knew this guy, this old bartender who used to book the band. This guy was a traveler. He worked in a bar that was tagged. He knew Brody needed something. Otherwise, he was going to do it, stick a gun in his mouth, or hang himself, or swallow a load of pills. So this old guy tells Brody about traveling, and suddenly Brody isn't suicidal anymore. Suddenly Brody realizes that he still has a future, and it's glorious. My method is a backpack filled with the following. Two shirts, pants, some underwear, hiking boots, a sweater, an umbrella, and a bag of weed, among other essentials. I also keep with me at all times the notebook, a small set of tools, and a world phone. I keep the adapters in the bag. A bag of weed isn't necessary, but it's an easy way to make money. That's one thing about the doors. There are no border guards, no drug-sniffing dogs. I picked up some stuff from Thailand, too, some really weird shit I offload where I can. A world phone isn't necessary, but it sure does help. In the old days, travelers would find each other by ads in certain newsletters or international newspapers. These days, things are different. You've no doubt seen some of our phone numbers. For a good time, call. Great Chinese food. Best blowjobs ever. Massages with happy endings. Some of those are real numbers, people trying to prank their friends, but most of them are us. All it takes is a little persistence and a working phone, and you can get another traveler on the phone in no time. Sometimes you need to, especially when you're in a strange place without the proper money to get where you want to go. Sometimes, though, that's part of the fun. I managed three days before I'm headed for the next tag. Three fucking days. I used to be able to manage a week, maybe more. 
The ride up the coast alternates between stretches of beach and houses. I wonder what it would be like to live there so close to the sand and the sea. But the idea is strangely distasteful. It seems so sedentary, so restricted. The road leads to Maruchador, but my journeys no longer have destinations, only waypoints. Each place becomes a doorway to another. The sun is starting to set as I reach the address the man gave me. It's a bathroom and shower just off of the beach. Tags are always in places like that, small spaces with doors and privacy. How often are you going to have someone barge in on you while you're in a stall? And the travelers keep the doors working well, oiled up, and with working latches. It's in our best interest. There's a rumor floating around that one of the tags is in an airplane lavatory, some old plane that's been around since the 70s. I don't believe it, but how cool would that be? In the air, 30,000 feet above the surface of the earth, and you step out into nothingness. I pull out my phone and dial Brody. It's become our little ritual. I call him before I go through. It gives him some kind of thrill, something else to think about other than his body falling apart. I tell him where I am, what I'm about to do. He gives a chuckle that sounds like gravel crunching and then starts coughing. How do you feel, I say. Like hell, he says. I hear the beeps and clacks of machinery behind him. They give me painkillers, but they don't seem to work that well. I wish I had some weed. I'll bring you some, I say. Talk to you later. The bathroom is empty. It's getting dark and the sun worshippers have already left. The air smells of the sea and that funky sulfur odor you get at the beach. It reminds me of boiling hair, but not nearly as bad. My sandals crunch on the sand of the floor. It's the stall all the way against the right wall, my favorite kind. The walls are shiny and metallic, no paint. Inside it smells of suntan lotion and cleaning products. At eye level, on the left stall wall, is a deeply scratched message that reads, For some deep dicking, call. I write the number down in my notebook. I want to do it. Activate the tag now and step through. But in this moment, the anticipation is so keen. I ride it like I will soon ride that other moment, that single glorious moment where I am, for just a fraction of a second, outside of creation. In that moment, I lose myself. I am nothing. And that is everything to me. Eventually, I give in, activate the tag, step through. The feeling is hard to explain. It's as if you're at rest while the universe moves around you, but in a good way. For one brief moment, the one shining moment, you are completely still. Completely. You may wonder what happens if someone's taking a dump when you step through, or if someone's in the dressing room on the other end. In those cases, the tag won't work. The first time that happened to me, I freaked out. I thought that maybe the tags had gone dead, or maybe I'd lost the ability to activate them. But then I tried again a few minutes later, and I stepped through into a theater dressing room after the play had started. I asked Brody about it later, and he told me something about mass and energy. The short of it is, sometimes you just have to wait. I step out into some kind of closet. It's dark, but by the light of my phone, I take down the number scrawled on the wall. The text is in Spanish. Lucky for me. Four years of high school Spanish isn't necessary, but it sure does help. I can get by okay, even if my pronunciation is shit. The hallway outside smells like dust and wood, and in the distance I can see a group of brightly dressed people. Latin music bleeds through the walls, lively but ghostly. Heading towards the music leads me out a side door into a music hall. Tables fill the space, packed with people drinking, and on a center stage, a band pumps out energetic music to a Latin beat. A voice inside me tells me to stay, have a seat, order a local drink, but I have a mission somewhere I need to find. I dial the number on the street, 
a woman answers, speaking with a throaty Spanish accent. We muddle through the particulars, and she agrees to meet me at the dance hall. I'm in Lima, Peru. I go back outside, settle into a chair, and order a pisco sour. She shows up halfway through my second sweet drink. A little older than me, with short dark hair and skin the color of coffee, she slips into the seat opposite me. She pulls out a leathered zippered portfolio and opens it to reveal her treasure trove. What are you looking for? she says. New Jersey and the United States, I say. I think this time might be the one, though that might be the alcohol talking. She runs a finger down the crisp pages in front of her. I have New York. So do I. No, I say, I need New Jersey. It has to be. Then I'm afraid you're out of luck. I don't have what you're looking for. You and everyone else, I say. Then I'll take the closest door that you have. The closest door that she knows of, at least, is in Sao Paulo, Brazil. She wants something that leads to Asia. Turns out I have just the thing. A door in La Paz, Bolivia, that leads to one in Japan. I've never actually used it. It's just the spoils of good trading. She notes it down in careful and precise penmanship and zips up the folio. I get up and start making preparations to go to Brazil. The search continues. Everything changes after your first time. Your first time, it's better than sex. Better than the first time you discovered masturbation, the first time you got head, the first time you were tied up and hit with a riding crop. Traveling is better than any of that. Brody introduced me to it. I like to think that he saw something in me, some kindred spirit, some tag of my own to indicate that I wasn't one of the mindless sheep shuffling along in this material existence. Or maybe it was because he knew he was dying, and he wanted to travel by proxy. He never said. He told me about traveling even as he stirred those clumps of hair, waiting for them to curl like some great big pubic soup, about how it didn't matter what he did for a living because he could travel the world any time he wanted because he knew that all of this, waving his hands like he was feeling up a fat chick, was bullshit, and he had stumbled onto one of the world's secrets. I, of course, thought he was crazy. But later that week, he invited me out for a beer, and not wanting to head home to face my divorce papers and the cable that wouldn't work, I said yes. He took me to this dive bar called Addison's. The place had been around for probably a hundred years, I later learned that that was common for tagged sites. They tend to be places that have been around for a while, places that aren't likely to change. Though the ones that do get changed or knocked down or whatever, obviously, aren't around anymore. We grabbed a beer first, talked about work, shit like that. Then he led me into the men's room. I'll admit, I was a little scared. I thought he might try something. I hadn't pegged Brody as gay, but I could see him being a pervert. He looked like someone you might find outside of a window, jerking it. He peered around inside the room, making sure it was empty. One guy was washing his hands, so we waited for him to leave. I thought that maybe it was a drug thing, but aside from some pot in those two times on ecstasy, I wasn't into anything else. He gave me the come-over-here wave and then opened the bathroom stall. I was really nervous now, but I wanted to know what was going on, what Brody was into. He showed me the tag. I thought it was graffiti. I remember thinking, what the fuck? Do you trust me, he said. No? Fair enough. Just do what I say, okay? In a minute, I want you to go out and close the door. When you open it again, I won't be here. What I want you to do is then look at this here mark or tag. Then he showed me how to activate it. I'm not going to say how it works. You're fucked if you think that. It's worth it, he said. It's worth it all. It wasn't until much later that I understood what he meant. I, of course, didn't believe a drop of it. 
But one minute I heard his voice from inside, and then it went strangely quiet. I looked under the stall, but couldn't see his feet. I was convinced he was pranking me. I would open the door, and he'd be standing on the toilet, ready to scare me or piss on me or something. But when I opened the door, bracing myself, no one was there. It took me a while. It all seemed so silly, but eventually I had to try. I activated the tag, and then I opened the door and stepped into ecstasy. The flight to Sao Paulo eats up what's left of the money I got from the pot sale, but that's okay. A cab gets me to the restaurant. It used to be a plantation house, but now it's a swanky restaurant. I take my seat at the table for one and decide to eat something before I examine the door. Travelers bring new meaning to the idea of dine and ditch. The seafood risotto is good and filling, but the caprina is what I get excited about. Authentic local drinks aren't necessary, but they sure do help. I excuse myself before the waiter asks me about dessert, pass the bathroom, and skip out the back to a small hut. It's dressed up in religious iconography, but I wonder what it was used for. Some place where slaves lived? Maybe. Green trees sway around me in the wind, and the air smells clean and fresh. The roar of the endless traffic drifts up from the street. What would the air smell like where I'm about to go? I'm still drunk when I travel out. No one knows who created the tags, who set up the system, though there are lots of theories. Most people call them the makers, though I think that shows a distinct lack of imagination. There seems to be no rhyme or reason to the doorways and their relation to one another either. Some will take you a few hundred miles away. Others will take you across the world. Some say they are all positioned at the conjunction of ley lines, those imaginary connections that the druids studied. They say that the makers harnessed the power of the magnetic field or something. That still doesn't explain who they were or how it works. No one has ever established a complete map of them, though, so there's no way to tell if this is true. Others say that God put the doors in, that it's a way for his chosen to move around. Those are the kind of travelers I like the least. They never write for a good time call. They usually leave some kind of self-help bullshit message behind. I don't really care who made the doors, or even why. They exist, and I know about them, and that's enough for me. But sometimes, when I'm drunk or high and thinking about this stuff, I imagine this guy, kind of older, hippie-ish, looks a little like Jesus. And he's like this easy-going guy who just bums around a lot, blows into town, hangs out on the beach, does some odd jobs to pay for shit, drinks a bit, and then decides to move on. And he has this strange power. And he just uses it to live this kind of free, unattached life, not even knowing that this whole secret society has grown up around what he's doing. Sometimes that thought makes me smile. And sometimes, just sometimes, it makes me incredibly sad. I come together into darkness, a room by the closeness of the air. The black is impenetrable. That's never happened to me before. I use the light of my phone to look around. A stone room, like some kind of cellar or cell, surrounds me. I don't see any kind of door. No exit. How? The panic starts to set in a moment later. Part of traveling, part of the fucking equation, is being able to move on. I've never heard of a dead end before. It shouldn't be possible. I swing the phone around. There aren't any skeletons or corpses, so that's encouraging. Unless I'm the first. I curse that bitch back in Lima. She fucked me over. Well, that won't last very long. All it will take is a few phone calls and she'll be blacklisted, barred from the trading process. For travelers, for me, that would be worse than death. Then some sense trickles through the panic. 
I hold the phone out, looking for the writing on the wall. I find one number, scratched into the stone at eye level. I dial it. A woman's voice answers, older, raspy. How the hell do I get out of here? I say. Ah, you found my little hole, she says. She has an accent I can't quite place, French or possibly German. Just tell me how to get out of here, I say. Now, now, don't be impatient. There are things we must discuss first. What things? She chuckles across the line. It devolves into a coughing fit. I have to hold the phone away from my ear. Things you must do before you can leave. The thing is, my dear, that I am old and my body no longer holds together the way it should. I can't be hobbling to and fro for every traveler who comes through. So you will give me the locations of all the doors you have, and I will let you go. You're fucking crazy, I say. I consider hanging up the phone, but then how will I escape? You do realize that this won't last. Word will get out. No one will use the door. Or worse, someone could kill you. My dear, I'm already dying. I don't have much time left. Certainly not enough time to jaunt around discovering new doors and places. No, all I need is a few like you and I'll have my pick for the last few. The sweet last few. As pissed as I am, as badly as I want to claw her eyes out, I sympathize. It's what Brody's going through, had gone through. It's my future. I need you to do something for me, I say. You're in no position to make demands, the woman says. She coughs again. It sounds wet and rattly. It's not for me, I say. I have a friend. He's in the hospital. The traveling got to him. Silence. He has maybe one trip left, but he's weak and hooked up to machines to keep him alive. I only have one shot to get him out of the hospital. I'm looking for a door near him, in New Jersey, the United States. Please, please help me. More silence, then coughs. Please, I say. I don't know that I've ever said it this way before, and meant it. But if I was in Brody's spot, I'd want someone to do it for me. The woman on the other end clears her throat. Give me all you have, and I'll see what I can do. So I pull out my notebook and my lighter, and by the flame I read her off my list of doors. I can hear her typing on the other end. She's fast, like she used to work in a steno pool. When I'm finished, my lighter is almost dead, and the air in the room seems stale. Well, I say. Hold on a moment, she says. I exhale. I hear the tapping of keys. I think I have something for you, she says. She reads off a location in New Jersey not far from Brody's hospital. I smile. Thank you, I say. Thank you, she says. Then there is a chugging of gears above me and a square of light opens and a rope ladder slides down in the fucking ceiling. I didn't even check there. I climb up onto some kind of abandoned stone building. I slam through the push bar door and out into a sleepy European street. Someone down the street is speaking French. I smile. I know a door in Paris that will take me back to the U.S. From there I can head to New Jersey. We both know that if Brody ever travels again, that it will kill him. But that's what I intend to do. He's going to die anyway. Might as well die doing what he loves. One day I'll stroll in during visiting hours, steal a wheelchair, and when no one is looking, I'll unhook him from the machines and we'll make a break for it. All I have to do is get him to the door. Then he can go through. It could cause all sorts of problems, of course. Imagine a corpse from New Jersey showing up in a bathroom stall in Italy. It could attract unwanted attention. But I have to help Brody. He's the one who introduced me to all this. He's the one who changed my life. And if I was in his position, I'd want someone to do it for me. 
I know right now that Brody's only regret is that he didn't get to travel more. A reason to live is very fucking necessary, and sometimes so is a reason to die. In Paris, the tag looks holographic in the bathroom lighting. It seems to squirm beneath my touch as I activate it. Closing my eyes and taking a deep breath, I step out into oblivion. Welcome back. One of my absolute favorite novels, a book I credit getting me to fall back in love with reading for fun as much as anything Neil Gaiman wrote, is Alex Garland's The Beach. You may have seen the Danny Boyle Leonardo DiCaprio movie, but I'm talking about the novel. The story of a group of travelers who more than anything love to travel, who are searching for that perfect, undiscovered spot, much in the same way the surfers from the endless summer are searching for the perfect wave. I love the spirit of that story, the counterculture, the spirit of traveling, for searching for something more, something different. I guess it has something in common with fantasy fiction in that sense. Traveling can make you feel incredibly isolated, a real outsider, and you love that. It becomes kind of addictive, and Rajan really got that vibe in this story. Thanks, man. Personally, I'm still happy to hop in my minivan whenever possible, but I wouldn't mind not having to go through the TSA scan the next time I'm going overseas or to Hawaii or whatever. The doors may be more dangerous, sure, but I don't have to worry about anyone oogling me. Unless, of course, I end up in a well I can't climb out of that has surveillance cameras. Damn. Where's my jetpack again? Well, feedback this week is for Paul Emberger's Stereogram of the Gray Ford in the Days of Her Glory. Read by Graham Dunlop and Anne Leckie, which for Mike Rockman summed up as a post apocalyptic story of humanity's defeat at the hands of elves. Yes, yes, yes! In general, people seem to have a similar reaction to it. Anarchistador said, I liked how this story did not shy away from just how arrogant and downright evil elves could be, which is more in keeping with the original folktales about them. I also enjoyed the faint whiff of Rudyard Kipling I got from Lauren's attitude about humans. Oh, we're doing this for your own good. We've taught you to be civilized. We've reawakened all the noble Wario ethos in you. You should be grateful, you silly little morals. A few people said the ending was telegraphed. Most said it didn't deter from their enjoyment, but it did M. Brennan's who said, I guessed about 98% of the second half of the story just by listening to the first. Jessica's narration only confirmed what I already knew, and since it kept covering the same events, I really lost interest and was just waiting for her to stab him already. Ouch. Hey, everybody keep the knives out of Marie's hands, okay? Seriously, thanks so much to everyone for commenting on that story. Please pop on by our forum at forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this one. Just, please... Don't leave any of those for a good time call, blah, blah, blah. I get enough of those in my live journal inbox these days. Okay, serious note. A couple of administrative things. First, for the last two months, I've been pushing the Alphabet Quartet as a special thank you for our donors. We record a lot of these host bits well in advance of when the stories get published, and as I was going on vacation... I took it on good faith that they'd be ready to send out to everyone. 
and it didn't happen. Those of you who listened to Escape Pod might have heard Steve talking about this in the episode featuring the latest Union Dues story, but the short story is the software we're using to deliver it to you isn't ready, at least not yet at the time when I'm recording this, about two weeks before this episode goes live. In my host spots, I kept saying it was going to happen, even sometimes because of the time shift that we were sending it out already. So, as of now, like I said, two weeks before this story goes live, it still hasn't happened. I'm really embarrassed by that. The stories are done. They've been done for a while now. They've been recorded and produced and are waiting to get to you all. I know that's frustrating for a lot of you. Believe me, though, when I say it's frustrating for me, too. I expected you all to be able to get these in July, and now we're pushing two months, and... I'm sorry. It's coming. I'm hopeful that it's already reached you. Okay, second, on a slightly more upbeat note, I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that I went on a road trip, and one of the cool people I met in person for the first time was my good friend Marshall Latham, who some of you know as Swamp from our forums. He started his own podcast now, Journey Into, which is a mixture of old and new stories as well as radio shows, and is quickly becoming my new favorite podcast around. And I'm not just saying that because he's running some of my stories there either. He's also got stories out of forthcoming by Tim Pratt, Greg Van Eekhout, David Barr Kirtley, Nathaniel Lee, who won our Flash Fiction Contest, and there was this awesome radio adaptation by some author named um, Ray Bradbury, I think. But hey, don't take my word for it. Listen to the promo. The unknown. Mystery. Space. Have fun. Adventure. Suspense. Fantasy. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror. The Journey Into podcast features replays of old radio shows like X-1, Escape, Suspense, Lights Out, and many more. Also, about once a month, I sure am trying, it will also feature full cast readings of new and classic stories, as well as new flash fiction. Think of it as a variety pack of audio fiction. It's a happy meal for your ears, or if you don't like happy meals... It's like the toy chest you used to dive into when you went to the dentist as a kid. Come check it out at journeyintopodcast.blogspot.com So, come with me, and let's journey into space. Or into adventure. Or into fear. Into mystery. Pretty awesome, right? For those of you bumming that this summer is almost over, this podcast is your fix. We'll link to it in our show notes. 
On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, I'd like to thank you all for letting us share another story with you. Enjoy what's behind door number two, and we'll see you all in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Jack Kerouac said, Live, travel, adventure, bless, and don't be sorry. <laughs>